It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. The biggest grossing film in the world this year is called The 800. It's a Chinese historical drama set during the Battle of Shanghai in 1937 and featuring heroic Chinese troops battling the invading Japanese. Like audiences in the West, the Chinese can't seem to get enough of films about the Second World War. But at a time of growing Chinese power and nationalism, China's attitude to the war also has significant political and international implications. And those implications are explored in a new book called China's Good War, How World War II is shaping a new nationalism. Its author is Professor Rana Mitter of Oxford University, who joins me for this week's show. So what is the reason for China's increasing obsession with the Second World War? Troops of the USA lead the forces of our comrades in arms, followed by those of China and other nations who stood at our side against the common foe. The British and the Americans seem to have been celebrating their Second World War victory more or less ever since it ended in 1945. For many years, however, the war was much less discussed in China. The first major official commemoration of the end of the Second World War didn't take place in Beijing until 2015, under the watchful eye of President Xi Jinping. For the Chinese Communist Party, memories of China's struggle against Japan look like a useful tool for stirring up patriotic pride. But the Chinese remember different events, even different dates, from those often commemorated in the West. For a British or American audience, the key moments of the war would seem self-evident, events like the Battle of Britain, Pearl Harbor or D-Day. The key moments of the war in China are rather different. The fighting broke out there in 1937, and the names of many of the important battles are probably still unfamiliar to most people in the West. There were events like the Marco Polo Bridge incident of 1937, which led to full-scale war with Japan. That same year also saw the tragedy of the Nanjing Massacre and the Battle for Shanghai. The Japanese are approaching from the north. It's beginning. That was audio from the 800, the film I mentioned earlier about a heroic rearguard action during the battle for Shanghai. Political sensitivities meant that the film's release was delayed for a year. The problem may have been that the heroic Chinese soldiers portrayed were not communists, but Chinese nationalists, who later fought the communists in the Chinese Civil War after the surrender of the Japanese. And that shows how intensely political memories of the war still are in China. So I was keen to discuss the politics of memory with Rana Mitter. Our interview was originally conducted for the Intelligence Squared podcast, and we've adapted it for the Financial Times. I started by asking him why World War II is now looming so large in China's view of the world. 
There are a couple of reasons, I think, Gideon, why today's China has World War II running through its veins. The first one is actually the sheer fact of what happened in China during World War II. It's perhaps one of, if not the single most devastating event that took place in China across a frankly very turbulent 20th century. More than 10 million dead after the invasion by Japan, 14 million by some counts, very, very high casualty rate, 80 to 100 million Chinese becoming refugees in their own country. And of course, immensely lengthy conflict. For China, it began not in 1939, but 1937, and lasted all the way up to 1945. And not incidentally, of course, they were holding down over half a million Japanese troops well before Pearl Harbor for about four and a half years. So in terms of historical significance, I think one element of its importance is people today remembering events which make them feel in some ways very patriotically proud, but which they feel are underappreciated by the outside world. But the other reason, I think, has much more to do with what you might call the psychology of contemporary China. I mean, many people have been to China, will have seen, you know, the skyscrapers, the increasingly high standards of living, the smartphones everywhere, Alibaba, all this sort of thing. But in China, as in many other countries, there's an increasing sense also that consumerism isn't enough, that somehow that higher standard of living, the economics, is not the only thing bringing people together. And in an age when, you know, the radical revolution of the cultural revolution of the 1960s, half a century ago, seems to be very inward looking, really a very unproductive way of of, of thinking about what a modern China should be, There's a strong element that wants to hark back to that period, a little bit like Britain in some ways, when everyone seemed to be standing together in a common conflict against the enemy. So there's a sort of nostalgic, patriotic element as well that says something about the contrast with the consumerism of today's China. And is there also a political agenda? Because it sometimes seemed to me that this vogue for the Second World War becomes being pushed quite hard by the government itself, by the Communist Party in the aftermath of of Tiananmen Square, uh, and it creates a kind of a different narrative and a different sense of loyalty for the Communist Party, particularly given the stress on their role in in defeating the Japanese. Well, it absolutely is a political agenda. And there's no doubt that if you go to somewhere like the Museum of the War of Resistance Against Japanese Aggression, to use the title for the war most commonly used in Beijing itself, which actually is a fascinating museum and any visitor to Beijing can go there. It's about, you know, 30 kilometers from the center of town, and it's located right at the Marco Polo Bridge, the for the Chinese iconic site where the war actually broke out in July of 1937. So you'll see there a version of history that in some ways does push forward this idea that the leading role of the Chinese Communist Party was first of all to lead the fight in defeating the Japanese, and then of course, as we know later, fight a civil war against the nationalists or the Kuomintang under Chiang Kai-shek and conquer China. But one of the things that makes the politics of it, I think, so interesting is that that's not the whole story. And it hasn't been really for at least 30 years and and maybe even a little longer, certainly since the 1980s. Because to make the story of World War II really work for the China of today, the China that wants to go global and not just be seen as a sort of revolutionary radical power in a rather inward looking way, is that it had to let the other actors back into the story. So yes, the Chinese Communist Party is still by Beijing you know, pushed forward as the leading light. But actually, one thing that's happened is that their old opponents in the civil war, the nationalists, the Guomindang under Chiang Kai-shek, who actually did the majority of the battle fighting during those eight years of World War II, their story has now been pushed much more to the forefront. It's never been officially acknowledged. Nobody's ever got up and said in public, Yes, these people were people we used to say did absolutely nothing and they never fought the Japanese and they were useless and now we've changed our mind. But actually, that's exactly what's happened. The old 
civil war enemy have been rehabilitated as actually patriots who did fight against the Japanese. And the other element, and I think in one sense, one of the things that I found most affecting in terms of researching the book is that it's enabled stories from ordinary people in China, which were repressed for a long time to come forth. So, of course, the Communist Party wants people to talk about the Communist Party role. And the communists did actually fight guerrilla warfare that was very important. But what people wanted to talk to me about was, you know, the story about their grandmother, who had actually kind of gone from some tiny village on the victory day in August 1945 to the big city of Chongqing, the temporary capital, to see the fireworks and the celebrations. And the reason that Granny had only been able to tell those stories in private for decades and decades is because she lived not in the communist area, but the nationalist area of China during the war. And under Mao, it simply wasn't permitted to tell those stories in public. So it is about politics, but it's also about personal stories and a much more broadened understanding of what's important in recent Chinese history to today's population. Mm. And one of the points you make in the book is that different countries have different Second World Wars, if you like, that there's an Anglo-American Second World War, there's a Russian Second World War, there's a Japanese Second World War. And the Chinese, I mean, it's not just that there were different events fought on the soil, that's a key part of it, but it's just a different approach to what the war was all about. You argue, for example, that for the Chinese, it wasn't a war for freedom so much as a war for order. That's absolutely right. And I used the term circuits of memory, which I hope doesn't sound too jargon-like, but it was a way of trying to express this idea that we often talk about, you know, collective memory of war. And I think in recent years, we've moved away from it being purely national. But in a sense, that sort of wider sense in which World War II is what you make of it for your own system. So, you know, for those of us living in Western Europe, we're living in broadly stable liberal democracies. And our World War II story is about how, you know, the Americans, the British fought back, defeated Hitler and then created that post-1945 order, which we still value today and which contains, you know, the EU, NATO and so forth. That, of course, is not remotely the story that the Chinese tell about the war. I mean, in a sense, you think, how could it be? And of course, for China, even in the aftermath of war, the idea of liberal democracy in, in the sense that uh, emerged in Western Europe was not the story that they were able to tell. Instead, the stories they told had several parts. One was really about national unification. Don't forget that at the beginning of the 20th century, there were people both within and, and outside China who were arguing that China was a geographical expression rather than a country. You know, it was being, in the phrase of the era, sliced up like a melon by the different imperial powers. You know, Britain snatches Hong Kong here, Germany snatches Shandong province there, the Russians take a bit up in the northeast, and so forth. So essentially, by fighting in World War II under Chiang Kai-shek, the Chinese managed for the first time in about a century to defeat the repeated incursions into their territory that had been happening ever since the Opium Wars of the 1840s, and instead re-emerges a very weak, very battered, but sovereign and united China. The problem was, of course, the civil war started almost immediately. But when you look at what commentators and thinkers and a lot of ordinary people write either in their diaries or their memoirs at that time, it's not initially a huge demand for a democratic future, although many of them did say that too. It was the idea that things should be stable ordered, that the economy would work, that somehow things would come together and create a calm, which no one in 1945 had really remembered in China, probably since about mm, the 1870s, 18, 1880s, uh, or really even not then, because China had just been riven by war for so long. So that was a primary purpose, I think, of why the Chinese were fighting in their own minds. And of course, that demand for order 
remains central to the current government regime, if you prefer to call it that, its view of what government is all about and what China should be aiming for rather than liberty? Well, it is. But I think it's worth being very careful about this, because, of course, one of the things that could be used and is used by authoritarian governments, China, Russia and elsewhere, is the argument that liberty and democracy don't matter as goals within this mixture. I think what it suggests is that people wanted order but it was order in service of then getting greater political participation. So again, I talk a little bit in the book about the immediate post-war period, which is a series of, of events, 1945 to about 1949, that those who know about China will associate with the horrific Chinese civil war of that period, which followed almost immediately after the defeat of Japan in 1945. And of course, that was an immensely important conflict. But what we don't often remember is that at that time, huge debates were going on in China about constitutional democracy. So the point is that people wanted order first. I think that's absolutely the case. But then many thinkers at that time, like the Confucian philosopher Liang Shuming, who actually went up, you know, he flew up uh, in a plane that the Americans provided to Yan'an, where Chairman Mao was based to try and persuade them to create a sort of semi-multi-party democratic system with Chinese characteristics, to use a phrase that you use at the moment. There are plenty of people, in fact, Chiang Kai-shek was at that stage looking to initiate a national assembly with national elections. So I think the point is that one shouldn't Think of this as a time when people contrasted order instead of democracy and liberty. What they said was, look, we do want these other values, but we want to make sure that China is whole and sovereign, economically stable, and any of the things that we simply hadn't seen for the decades prior to the Second World War itself. The, the two went together rather than being contrasting. And how much is the current Chinese version of history, how much is that directed towards hostility towards Japan, the invader, because obviously we're in a period where I think arguably China has now clearly displaced Japan as the most powerful country in the region. But there may be felt to be unsettled business, particularly because the Japanese themselves have a slightly ambiguous attitude to their own uh, Second World War history, to put it kindly. So is this not just about the past, but about a very current antagonism with Japan? I think the Japan element is immensely important for the reasons that you've outlined, but it's actually one of a set of factors, and I think others may be even more important. I mean, on Japan briefly, you're right to say that there is an element of the Japanese right wing that is, let's just say, more than acceptably ambivalent about the precise role of Japan during World War II. But the Japanese left and much of the mainstream, I think, you know, has uh, knowledge that this was a horrific set of events for which Japan was responsible. And I think one can also, you know, push, as sometimes happens in China, the idea too far that the Japanese have never really acknowledged the past. That isn't the case, I think. But actually, I think that the primary purpose, and I make this case quite strongly, I think, in the book China's Good War, is that the primary thrust is in two other directions as to why China is really concentrating so much on World War II. On the international front, I think it's much more to do, as so many things are these days, with the United States. And in particular, I think you can see that when you look at some of the statements that top leaders make. I'm thinking, for instance, of Wang Yi, the current foreign minister, who at this year's 2020 security conference in Munich started almost his comments by telling the audience, don't forget China was the first country to be a signatory to the United Nations Charter in April 1945 in San Francisco, which historically is accurate. The point is that Wang Yi, by making that statement, and China more broadly in terms of the way it looks at those events now, wants to make the case very clearly that it's not just the Americans who were, to use the American Secretary of State Dean Acheson's phrase, present at the creation. 
China also, because of its wartime sacrifices and because it was there in San Francisco and also took part in the charter and all of that, was also a creator of the current post-1945 world order. And a large part of the revival of the World War II collective memory, I think, is to boost that particular story about China being, to use Bob Zellick's phrase, a responsible global power. The other element, I think, is really about China's sense of itself domestically. And as I think I've indicated, but would make the point again, China today has huge numbers of people who feel that while their standards of living have been increasing, there's this sort of hole in the middle in terms of a sense of kind of common purpose and collective identity. And I think for many people, you know, whether it's something as simple as playing a video game that reenacts the World War II period or going and seeing this hit movie, The 800, which is about sort of personal sacrifice in the face of a national invasion for the greater good, is supposed, I think, to boost that sort of feeling that there is this wider sense of moral purpose in the contemporary Chinese state and that it has its point of moral origin in fighting the good fight against fascism during World War II, rather like the argument that the British and the Americans make about participation in the war in our own Western societies. So give us a sense then, obviously, in popular culture in the UK, in the US, so many films, books, etc., are still about the Second World War, they're the big hits. How much is the popular culture that Chinese people consume now, whether it's on television or the internet, how, much, how Second World War focused is it? Huge amounts of Chinese popular culture still focus on the Second World War. There is absolutely no doubt about that. But the bits of the Second World War that it concentrates on can vary from place to place. And sometimes the state and the creative media, if you want to put it that way, who actually get popular culture relating to World War II out there come into conflict. So just a few years ago, there was an official state edict, which I think was highly secret, but immediately leaked, like many Chinese state edicts are, that told TV drama producers not to produce so many ludicrous dramas in which one bullet from a Chinese warrior managed to fell, you know, sort of 200 Japanese soldiers at one go, because they said it actually looked ridiculous and made the World War II effort in, in some way seem uh, less serious than it actually was. But in terms, for instance, of television, this 2020, one of the hit series showing on Chinese TV, which, by the way, um, viewers can tune into and see on YouTube with English subtitles. It's perfectly easily uh, available. It's just that uh, Westerners don't tend to do it very much. Autumn Cicada is about spy intrigues in 1941, led by uh, the Chinese Communist Party underground in the wartime years. And in contrast with that, the movie The 800, that's a movie about the nationalist war effort. So both sides, the communists and the nationalists, are still out there in the popular culture. You can also find other genres. So for instance, there was quite a genre by people such as the writer Fang Jun. He was born in the 1950s, but it was a sort of personal memoir of talking to his dad about his dad's uh, wartime experience fighting the Japanese and sort of rethinking his identity as a young Chinese through these rather, you know, it was kind of like the greatest generation for the Americans, that sort of writing. And last but not least, but one should remember that, as in the rest of the world, social media is a huge source of all these sorts of discussions. So one group of people who become very famous are what are called in China the guofen, which means nationalist party fans. And what this means is people who kind of have kind of almost cyber wars online about how much of the fighting in World War II at Shanghai or these other kind of great battles of the time were won by the nationalist soldiers and how much were actually won by the communist soldiers. And all these people, I assume they're mostly male. They're probably not very ancient. I mean, they're you know, probably in their I don't know, 20s, 30s, whatever. But these are real sort of disputes in which ideas about contemporary China are being filtered through these ideas about what the World War II past really meant. So whether it's, you know, on screen or in cyberspace, 
World War II is everywhere in China. But it's interesting then, because that makes the point, really, that this is not a narrative that's completely controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, that there are people out there on the internet making arguments about the role of the nationalists that the party might not feel that comfortable with. And yet, again, a point you make in your book is that at times Xi Jinping himself has been an active participant in talking about how the Second World War should be memorialized. That's absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that is really notable is that although the state clearly wants to control a great deal of what's said about World War II, and as you say, Xi Jinping has made several speeches in recent years in which he says that the significance of the war of resistance should be more greatly understood both at home and abroad, and has put both resources and you know, a significant amount of political control into how the war is portrayed. The one thing that, again, doing the research for the book showed is that it can only be controlled up to a certain point because people put back into it what they want to see. So perhaps one of the most interesting counterexamples is a man called Fan Jianchuan, who started off as a property developer, as so many of the rich in China did. But when he made enough money in his home province of Sichuan, down in southwest China, he decided to put the money into a museum complex. And this is still open today. You can find it online as well, the Jianchuan Museum Complex, in which, amongst other things, he has a museum of the nationalist, i.e. the non-communist contributions to World War II, which gets, from all accounts, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of visitors every year. And this isn't an exact sort of poke in the eye to the communist rhetoric, because it's not directly saying that it's wrong. But what it is saying is that there are many aspects of the history of this war that relate to people's regional memories, to the memories of their grandparents, which maybe don't immediately kind of fit in with what the uh, official version in Beijing says, And my museum, which is a private enterprise, he says, my museum is there to give people some sort of access to those sorts of memories. So, of course, China is a heavily controlled authoritarian society and it's become more so in recent years. But the idea that there aren't opportunities for people to have their own, I think, rather individual takes on what the war means to them and often use it for some slight sly critiques of the wider Chinese uh, society, that I think is important to understand. It's a very flexible way of thinking about many of the problems of contemporary Chinese society as well. So, Rana, we talked about the way in which history has been remade by the party and in popular culture, but what role did history professors such as yourself play? I mean, has there been a process that's been going on in the academy as well? Well, I wouldn't give myself the credit that I've ever affected anything that involved real politics, but that's not true for Chinese historians who've actually had a huge influence in the changing way that people think about World War II in China. Essentially, in the 1980s, you know, in the era after the Cultural Revolution, when China was actually opening up in all sorts of ways, particularly for academic inquiry in a variety of areas, including economics. I mean, you know, getting from your FT position, you'll be aware that China's economy is one of those things that has essentially taken on capitalism at full throttle. And it did so in the 1980s because they were willing to listen to new economic methods that they simply hadn't thought of under the old system. And the historian Julian Gewirtz has written very brilliantly about that particular area. So the same is true for history. Basically, lots of the very well-trained, very impressive historians of modern China are places like universities in Nanjing and Fudan in Shanghai and the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences all got together in conferences for the first time liberated from having to mouth, you know, the the slogans of the Cultural Revolution and said in in one actually very notable article in the mid-1980s in one of the major Chinese academic journals, look, 
our existing history of World War II is unsatisfactory. It concentrates too much on just what the communists did, not what the other players, including the Chinese nationalists did, or the Americans or the British. And we need a much more comprehensive understanding of what actually happened during those war years. And during that relatively liberal period, the Chinese Communist Party, to give it credit, did cautiously and somewhat reluctantly allow them to open up those areas of debate. Now, ever since then, the historical freedom to write about these things has waxed and waned, as freedoms do in China under the Chinese Communist Party. And I'd say right now it's probably one of the, you know, for for sure, one of the more constrained times in terms of freedom in the Chinese academy. But overall, if you look over the last 30 or 40 years I do in the book, you will see that the areas of discussion in the Chinese academic sphere, including some quite ticklish subjects like Chinese collaboration with the Japanese, but more than that, really, this this reassessment of the role of all of the non-communist actors has become absolutely central to research within the Chinese universities. And you might say that that's the seed corn in which it's much bigger popular culture reassessing World War II on television or on screen has emerged from. Without the professional historians, China's popular culture would not have re-embraced World War II in that way. And as a Western historian working on the same issues, do you find yourself in a sense in a common dialogue with your Chinese colleagues in the way you would be with colleagues in America? Or is it very constrained by the political system they operate under or something in between? It's a common dialogue. And actually, over the years, it's been a huge pleasure to be in Beijing, Shanghai and uh, Chongqing and other places to debate these issues alongside my my Chinese colleagues, without whom, by the way, both this book and previous books I've written would not have been possible because they've always pointed me in the direction of archives and documents and things that as a solo Westerner, I probably would never have, uh, have come across. But having said that, it's not quite the same dialogue as I have with my British or my American colleagues for one simple reason. China's World War II experience is increasingly becoming part of the way in which we understand the global war. And I'd cite books like uh, recent you know, books for a, an informed general audience like um, Hans van der Ven's China at War or Richard B. Frank's Tower of Skulls, which really put the China element of World War II into a wider global and regional perspective. But for the Chinese historians, this is the war. Questions such as, for instance, would it have been possible for the Chinese economy to survive under the economic blockade from the Japanese that basically plagued it during much of those years. It's an immensely important question. It provides a lot of comparative value when we look at the economies of wartime Europe as well. But the fact is that the Chinese element for my Chinese colleagues will always be central and much more important in that sense. And, you know, those of us who are involved in this are from the West feel privileged to take part in the discussions. But in a sense, they're owned by the Chinese. Yeah, I think... As I understood your book, you were saying that that interregnum between the end of the Second World War and the communist triumph in 49, when nationalists are still in charge, is still a a kind of awkward period to explain. Awkward, but really important. Thank you for bringing that up, Gideon, because actually, if I'm making it a kind of one argumentative point with the book, that's one that I think is really important. It's what I call the Chinese post-war. Because if you know a bit about Chinese history, I mean, not as a professional historian, but you know, just someone who reads around 1949, the final communist victory in uh, the civil war against the nationalists is for very good and obvious reasons still a major turning point. And for that reason, the years between the end of World War II and the defeat in the civil war seem like a sort of coda, you know, this awful civil war, and then finally the communists win. But actually, in China itself, Lots of people are now going back to that period and realizing that lots of things that are really important today, such as the legal 
justifications or non-justifications for China's territorial claims in South China Sea or the islands in the East China Sea actually stem from things that happened in those intervening years. The 11-dash line in the South China Sea first appears in that form in a map, I think, in 1947 under the nationalist government. China gets its seat as a permanent five member of the UN Security Council, something it's very proud of today and uses as often as possible, not under the communists, who are actually excluded, of course, for 25 years from the, the UN, but under the Chinese nationalists. The Tokyo Trials, the International Military Tribunal for the Far East, with a Chinese judge sitting in judgment internationally there for the first time. That happened in 1948. So that post-war set of years, having been ignored for a long time, both by the West and China, is now actually being brought back in Chinese consciousness as a post-war period when China began to reap the benefits of being an allied power. You might say that today's communist China is cashing a check that was written for them by Chiang Kai-shek's government back in 1945. And I mean, we talked about how the Chinese view of the Second World War affects their relations with Japan. We also alluded to, in a way, the more important rivalry now with the United States for dominance in the Pacific and perhaps dominance of the 21st century as the most powerful country. And again, you make the point that they're almost kind of competing interpretations of the Second World War that back up different claims. And I mean, I, I remember talking to you know a senior member actually of the Obama administration dealing with China, who said to me, well, you know, his father had fought in the Pacific with the American Navy and that America had dominated these waters ever since then, and that, frankly, they were not going to give that up. So that was a view of America's role in the Pacific totally rooted in the Second World War. But does China's view, in a sense, contest that American claim to the right of dominance of the Pacific? It absolutely does. I mean, one of the most important elements of the story, the narrative that the Chinese Communist Party and China as a whole, not just communists by any means, now tell about its World War II experience is that it too was a liberator against the forces of the Axis, in, in the case of Asia, of course, against the Japanese. And they, of course, acknowledge the American role as being very central and indeed primary in many ways, but they object deeply to the almost complete exclusion of China from that story. In other words, World War II gives a sort of moral foundation in this narrative to the Chinese presence in the region and the formation of order in the region in a way that simply having a huge PLA Navy or the ability to basically use air defences to cover the South China Sea doesn't do in quite the same way. That is a story of power, whereas what the Chinese also want is a story of moral rights, of sacrifice that enables them to have the role there. The problem is, and I think there is a big problem, that this is not likely to be as successful as the American version for two quick reasons. One is that, of course, starting to create that narrative 50 years after the event doesn't have the same power as it does if you follow on immediately afterwards. And the second issue is that, of course, while the American legacy of World War II is very important in the historical basis of why they're in the Pacific to this day, the fact that from the 70s and 80s onwards, most of the American allies became democratic, uh, South Korea and so forth, means that there is a much greater sense that there's also a contemporary political consensus behind the American presence in the region. Whereas China, of course, is not looking to use democratic means to try and uh, embed its presence in the region. So its World War II story doesn't feed into quite the same sort of democratic narrative that the American one does. Absolutely. And that brings us to my last question. Do you worry at all that the version of the Second World War that the Chinese have in popular culture and in academia, and its prominence 
may create a kind of revanchist or overly nationalist view of the world. You know, here in the UK, I guess Brexit has made us interrogate our own relationship with the Second World War and is it an entirely healthy relationship. Is China's relationship with the Second World War a healthy relationship? Of course, it's one of the single most important questions facing, well, frankly, the world, but certainly Asia today. What is Chinese nationalism about? And is it likely to become an angry force that could uh, destroy peace in the region and beyond? I think there are dangers in that. There really are. I mean, we've been seeing during the COVID pandemic occasions where what's become known as wolf warrior diplomacy, named after a famous movie of a few years ago, has resulted in a Chinese foreign policy position in terms of the views of other countries that seems much more geared towards firing up a social media audience within China itself with very confrontational you know, tweets and, and messages rather than really trying to smooth out the diplomacy of the region. And I think that has the potential to be very dangerous. And I very much hope that China's going to be stepping back a bit from uh, that side of things. That said, I don't think the World War II rhetoric actually is the most difficult part of that. I think that one of the things that is most important about, in a sense, it's potentially productive about the World War II narrative that China's putting forward is the side that is about cooperation and the idea that basically a legacy of World War II for China is that P5 seat at the United Nations, that a legacy of China's World War II experience is that it has this memory of suffering, not least through things like the horrific you know, Nanjing Massacre and these other sorts of events, that means that it should have a greater empathy in terms of understanding how others have suffered as well. If it can leverage that into what Chinese foreign policy doesn't yet really show, which is a sense of a sort of altruistic empathy towards other actors, understanding how other small countries in the region feel about Chinese power, transmitting those feelings of trauma and invasion and horror and helplessness that you read over and over again in the sources from China in the 1930s and 40s and, you know, really are, are heartrending in many ways, to understand that the way that people felt, uh, that Chinese people felt then is something that nobody else ever wants to feel either. One, there's no suggestion in, in any sense that China's going to launch a war of that sort. The understanding that very large, powerful countries in your region, however well or otherwise intentioned they may be, have the potential to cause real alarm is something that I think Chinese foreign policy needs to understand and perhaps hasn't really internalized successfully at all well. So maybe reading a bit more of their own history on that front, I think we could all in the world do with reading more of it. And I think the lessons for it are some that could help to soften and I think improve much of the Chinese face that it's placing towards the world at the moment. Rana Mitter, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much indeed, Gideon, and thank you for discussing China's Good War, which I hope some people will find an interesting read. That was Rana Mitter in Oxford, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. I do hope you'll be able to join us again next week. You can find the show in all the usual podcast apps. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.